Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, I am Nate Collins, pastoral resident at Bethany Green Lake. So I'm sort of like Josh Jr. He was pastoral resident before me. Um, And uh, Travis has invited me to come speak. He says it's because he's on vacation. I think it's because the passage includes wives and husbands this morning, and he wanted to pass that off to someone else. But I'm, I'm glad to be here, um, and uh, I brought my wife with me, Katie, who's here in the front, and uh, she is a doula. I'll just introduce us a little bit so you know a little bit of who we are. She's a doula, which is a birth worker, and um, she's also pregnant with our third. So um, yeah, that's exciting, and, and I've tried to convince her to be her own doula so we can save some money, but she says it doesn't work that way. I don't know why. Um, our, our two sons, Peter and Micah, are over in the children's room. Micah just turned three, and Peter will be five in uh, August. Um, as we look around ourselves today, we see people who are filled by all kinds of different things. We can see people who are filled with greed or lust or hate or apathy or the desire for entertainment or selfishness or judgment, fear, the desire for power anger, and whatever we're filled with, it shapes the way we live. Um, Most of us are filled with a mix of things. My own own tendency is to be filled with the idea that most other people don't really get it quite as well as I do. Um, And I don't share that because I'm proud of it, but full full transparency here, right? Um, That's true of of reading, reading the Bible. It's true of the Christian life. It's true of music, literature, how I think the world should work. I just sort of assume that I get it better than everyone else. And this shapes my attitude, and it shapes me. It shapes the way, how, the way I interact with people. Um, it, I spent a lot of time during my, my... I got my MDiv up at Regent College in Vancouver, B.C., and I spent a lot of time there um, trying to sort of uh, see myself as the one who got all this stuff we were studying better than everybody else. And, and I think that um, while I had some great friendships, that that blocked me from some other friendships because I had this sort of sense of competitiveness with some of the people on campus. And uh, I could have, I could probably have learned more there had I been more humble and more open. I could have probably had some more friendships there. Um, But what I was full of shaped the way I acted in this community. And so I missed some opportunities. Um, Most of you are probably filled with something else, but, but we all have a tendency to be filled by something And it's going to shape the way we live. And Paul urges us in our passage, which we've just read, to find our new identity as we find our new identity in Christ to be filled with the Spirit and to let the Holy Spirit shape who we are and how we live uh, in relation to the people around us. And as we'll see, this is going to be important in, in two primary ways. The first is in our community life, primarily in our community of faith. And the second is in our home lives uh, and how we, are, uh, how we act in our households. So I've divided our sermon today into three sections. The first section is called the imperative, be filled with the Spirit. I think this is in your bulletin. Um, The second is the consequences of being filled with the Spirit. And the third section is Spirit-filled submission in the household. So as Travis has been preaching through the book of Ephesians, you'll have noticed 
the, 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 the main theme of this book is finding our identity in Christ. And particularly in the last chapter, in, in large portions of chapter 4, um, Paul has been instructing his readers about how to find their new identities in Christ and what it looks like to live out of that new identity rather than their old identity. So he said things like, don't live like the Gentiles or the non-Christians. Take off the old self, clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put away falsehood and speak truth. Be imitators of God. Uh, you were formerly darkness, now we walk in the light, Paul says. And in today's passage, he continues and sums up this discussion about the old and the new life. And he says the following, So be careful to live your life wisely, not foolishly. So wisely, the new way, foolishly, the old way, or the old self. He says, Take advantage of every opportunity, because these are evil times. Because of this, don't be ignorant, but understand the Lord's will. So a few things to take away from this bit here. We're to live wisely and not unwisely, and we're to take advantage of every opportunity. Literally, this word that uh, the, the CEB, the Common English Bible, translates as um, take advantage is, uh, of every opportunity is literally to, to buy back the time. Um, and this same word is used rarely in the New Testament, but Paul uses it twice in Galatians uh, 3.13 and 4.5 of Jesus redeeming or buying people back from the law and into adoption as sons and daughters of Christ. And so the idea here is that these, these are God's people originally. Everyone, everyone is God's people originally. But they have been enslaved to the law, and now Jesus has purchased them back or bought them back into adoption into his family. And in the same way, the, t- the time, the time that we live in, right now it belongs to God, but it, uh, it has been enslaved to the world or commandeered by the world, and we are to buy it back and to liberate it so that it might be used for God's purposes and not for evil purposes. I think a, a great illustration of, um, of the way, uh, this sort of idea of buying things back for Christ is what Bethany North has done with uh, their coffee shop. Are you guys, you know about their coffee shop? It used to be a strip club. And then, as I understand it, the building came up for lease, and they, they leased, the, leased the building, and they turned it into a coffee shop, which is an outreach to uh, heroin addicts, as well as a community space for the people around. And so this is the idea. They've, they've bought that building back for Christ, and they're using it for redemptive purposes, and we're to do the same thing with the time that we're living in. We are also not to be ignorant, Paul says, but we're to understand the Lord's will. Paul goes on then and starts to articulate more clearly for us what the will of the Lord is. And he says this, Don't get drunk on wine, which, to, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And this is the key here for understanding this passage this morning, that Paul's uh, exhortation to be filled with the Spirit. This is what is to characterize our new lives in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is what is to shape how we live. And the rest of the passage uh, that we'll be speaking about this morning is, is breaking down more clearly what it, what it means to be filled by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. Actually, verses 18 through 24 in this passage are all one sentence in the Greek. And, uh, and in English translations, it's not because Greek, you can have these long sentences. Paul likes to use them especially, but in English, it just doesn't work. So they've got to break it up. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. Um, but the downside with this is that uh, it, it's, it obscures some things 
in the passage. It's misleading in that it makes it seem like there's several disconnected commands throughout this passage. Be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another in psalms and hymns, sing in your hearts to the Lord, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, as in many of your Bibles, you'll probably see start a new section, either in 522 when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, or in 521 when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's fine, they've got to break these Bibles up somehow, but in the Greek, it's important to realize that this is not a new sentence, it's not a new topic, this is all still talking about the results of being filled by the Spirit. And all these separate commands that we see in our English Bibles are actually what's called participles. Sorry to take you into syntax and grammar here. Participles are words ending in I-N-G, usually, so um, uh, speaking or singing or giving thanks or submitting to one another, and all these participles indicate the results or the consequences of being filled by the Spirit. So all that Paul talks about in the rest of this passage is the results or the consequences of being filled by the Spirit. And if we're going to understand this passage well, we have to keep that in mind as we, go, uh, as we move forward. Uh, this, in this fourth participle, of course, being filled to the Spirit, is broken down extensively. Paul talks quite a while about household relationships, right, with husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. So the overall overarching question throughout this passage is, are you living as a people filled with the Spirit? Specifically, are you doing so in your communal worship and in your household relationships? We move on to our second section of the sermon, the consequences of being filled with the Spirit. Uh, I'm going to treat speaking and singing together, these two, two uh, separate participles or consequences The first two consequences of being filled with the Spirit are that we speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that we sing and make music to the Lord in our hearts. So in other words, our lives when we're filled with the Spirit uh, are to be characterized by heartfelt worship. Uh, And this isn't just me and God worship. So for example, uh, at home, having my quiet time, something like that. But this is, is, we're speaking to one another as well in spiritual songs. And you know, this isn't like, uh, when I read this, I sort of imagine uh, like the, the, the early settlers of America, these Puritans who, they seem all very serious all the time, and I can kind of imagine them coming up to each other and say hello, and then, and then they start singing a hymn to the other, and nobody smiles, and they sing a hymn to each other and, and walk off. And that's not, of course, what it's talking about. We're talking about communal worship, right? So as we did this morning, we come and we sing songs. So Bree, thanks, we've, we've done the first one this morning. Um, we can pat ourselves on the back for that. Um, of course, there's always room for growth in this, right? But um, I think this is one that we perhaps do more naturally than the others that we'll talk about this morning. The second one, giving thanks. If we're filled with the, filled with the Spirit, says Paul, we will also give thanks to the God and Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, if we're filled by the Spirit, we will have lives marked by profound gratitude. And this is certainly something for me to aspire to. Um, my own inclination is more to um, focus on the bad things in life uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and try to have sort of a stoic attitude about those. And then when good things come along, try to also be stoic about those good things and not really, not really uh, be thankful for them. But think, you know, uh, oh, it's a beautiful day. Well, it'll probably rain tomorrow, so don't get too happy about it. Or you know, that's sort of an attitude, sort of like Puddle Glum, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it's not a very helpful attitude. And this is a stark contrast with Paul, who uh, in, um, 
in Philippians, the first part of Philippians, he's writing this letter while he's in prison, and he spends the first several paragraphs trying to convince the Philippians that it's actually a good thing that he's in prison, and he's thankful to be in prison because it means that Christ is being preached all over the place, and they don't need to worry about it. That's a, a startlingly different attitude than what I usually bring to life. Similarly, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. They've got their feet in, in stocks, and um, it's midnight, and I don't know what you'd be doing in prison at midnight. I would certainly not be doing this. They are singing hymns to God and praying. And so there's this sense of profound gratitude that rather than sitting there and, and being furious with the Roman authorities for putting them in jail or, or uh, you know, uh, getting bitter about it or weeping or something, they're sitting there singing, and, singing hymns and praying. Um, this is a very surprising attitude to me and something that I think I can certainly grow at a lot in my own life. And maybe some of you uh, can resonate with that as well. Finally, Paul says, uh, the fourth and final consequence of being filled with the Spirit is that we will submit to each other out of respect for Christ. And here I think we need to reframe a little bit what we mean by submission. The word means submit, but when Paul talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ... um, We've got to think a little bit differently because if, if each of us is submitting ourselves to the authority of the other, no one's actually going to do anything, right? Because we're all waiting for someone else to make a decision, and no one's going to make a decision because we're all submitting so well. Um, so I think we have to be a little more creative when we think about what Paul means. Um, it's not so much a hierarchical sense in this verse. Rather, what Paul seems to have in mind, I think, is thinking of the desires and needs of others before our own and putting others before ourselves both in our Christian communities here and in, uh, in our, our Christian communities, in other words, here at Bethany Eastside, uh, for me at, at Bethany Green Lake, as well as in our home lives. And um, we've mentioned Philippians already. Uh, the second chapter of Philippians is helpful in understanding this attitude, I think. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul goes on to articulate what this kind of spirit-filled Christ-like mutual submission looks like in the three reciprocal relationships typical of a Roman household. So this sort of selfless love that Paul talks about in Philippians, that Christ is an example of for us, uh, he now breaks down into, so, into the three types of relationships in a Roman household. Here we're at our, our third point, spirit-filled submission in the household. Before we dive into each relationship pair that Paul speaks of, I want to talk a, a bit generally about how we're to approach this passage. I think this is confusing for a lot of people. I know I've been confused about, about it for much of my life. Um, I think the first thing to understand is that this passage is deeply culturally embedded for Paul and for the readers and for us as well. The family structure that Paul outlines is, is a typical Roman household structure, right? Husbands ruled wives in Rome, and wives submitted to their husbands. And here we're talking about the, the, the normal hierarchical sense of submission, right? Um, they submitted to their husbands. Fathers ruled children, and children obeyed fathers. Masters ruled slaves, and slaves obeyed masters. 
And now all of this is not to say that this is how every single household was all the time. It's not to say that nobody chafed under this system. It's not to say that there all, either that there weren't any good husbands or fathers or slave masters in Rome. But this is a general way that Roman households worked. Um, there were actually some people who, who recommended uh, loving your wife in, in Roman households. There were people who recommended treating your slaves well. But this is not typically, uh, in, in the Roman world, this it wasn't, t- wasn't done out of a sense of, of valuing that other person, and uh, certainly not as seeing that other person as uh, uh, bearing the image of God as fully as I do, but it's done sort of out of a, a pragmatism, right? So have you ever heard this saying, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Yeah, so that's not a really a very nice saying, is it? Because it, it, no, it doesn't mean that you care about the mom. It just means that mom's going to make everyone miserable if we don't make mom happy. So this is, this is, I think, sort of the type of attitude that the Romans maybe had if they're trying to be nice to their, to their wives, if they're trying to be nice to their slaves. It's just practical. Like, it doesn't, you don't really care about them, but uh, you got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be miserable about it. Uh, so this is how households worked in the Roman first century. And to me, the fact that the structure of the household that Paul assumes is exactly the Roman household structure suggests to me that this exhortation is as deeply culturally embedded as his exhortation to, to Christian women in uh, Corinth to wear head coverings when they pray. That the, the command to wear head coverings is not because God revealed for all time that women must wear head coverings anytime they pray, but because in the Roman culture, to not have your head covered said things that were inappropriate for Christian women to say in their Christian communities. In the same way, Paul's exhortation here to the families um, is culturally embedded in the same way. Paul hasn't received this as, as uh, the structure for all Christian households for all time, but rather he's speaking into uh, the cultural and societal realities of his time and explaining what it means to navigate the existing family structures in a spirit-filled way. So he's saying, look, you guys are Romans. Here's how it works. You all know how to live in the Roman world. This is what's expected. And here's what it means to do that as a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, this is what it means in the Roman world in the first century. Um, So uh, an obvious question, I think, is why would Paul do this instead of just telling us what God actually wanted from the beginning, right? And I think the reason uh, is because people don't change overnight. I mean, you can uh, imagine um, for our environment to survive, I think, I think most people agree now that we need to stop driving cars. But can you imagine if the president uh, uh, like had a Damascus Road experience or something and, and, and outlawed driving cars overnight? Uh, we can't change that fast, right? Our whole society is built on driving cars. None of us would be able to get to work, or most of us wouldn't. Um, we wouldn't be able to go grocery shopping. Uh, just everything would break down. Um, and so, the, so it doesn't work to just change everything that drastically overnight. And so you have to approach things in a little bit different way. We'll talk about that more in a little bit here. So not only is this household code structure deeply culturally embedded, but it is also not meant to tell us God's ideal for us, I suggest, or even for the, peop- the people of first century Ephesus. And the reason I think this is because that's not what God's law did in the Old Testament either. So if you go and you read Leviticus, and you read Exodus, and you read Numbers, and you read Deuteronomy, you're going to see all kinds of laws about women, you're going to see all kinds of laws about slaves, and these laws kind of make some of us a little bit uncomfortable, right? 
Punishments for doing something to a woman are not the same as doing that same thing to a man. Punishments of doing something to a slave are not the same as doing it to a slave owner. Uh, this seems strange coming from God. And in fact, if you look, I think that that's because this is not actually God's ideal for humanity. If you go and you read Genesis, you find that all people are created equally in God's image. And they are to be valued as people created in God's image. Um, and they're not objects to be owned And they're not objects to be ruled by other humans. And yet the law has laws about women and slaves that permit them to be seen and treated as second class. Uh, And so I think what the law is doing is it's moderating the tendencies of second millennium Middle Eastern people. Okay, So when when the law comes into this culture in which Slave owners can do whatever they want with their slaves. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt and how he treated the Egyptians. And where husbands can do whatever they want with their wives and with their daughters, um, it moderates that. And so it says, okay, you can be slave owners, you can be, uh, you can be patriarchal family systems, but you've got to give them some rights. You can't just do whatever you want with them. You've got to treat them with some respect. You gotta, if you divorce your wife, you've got to give her some means of surviving. You've got to give her a certificate of divorce so that she can actually legally marry again and be provided for because she can't make money on her own and she can't survive. That sort of thing. So it's, the law is, the law is a, a push in the right direction, but it's not the end point of where God wants things to end up. You read the prophets, and you read, for example, Isaiah, and you read his vision of the coming kingdom that God is going to bring, and it doesn't look a whole lot like what you see in Leviticus and what you see in Numbers and what you see in Deuteronomy. I suggest that this is what's going on in the household code in Ephesians as well. It's a push in the right direction in comparison with current Roman practices, but it's not God's ideal for all people for all time. I think we just have to keep in mind that you can't expect a 14th century B.C. Mesopotamian person or a 1st century Roman person to act and think like 21st century North Americans or like 30th century North Americans. Uh, People may be saying similar things about us in a few centuries. Um, God knows that people don't change that quickly. So as we look through the relationships discussed, we'll see both how Paul redeems or buys back the patriarchal Roman household system for Christ, and we'll also see how he at the same time subverts it, pushing people to eventually think more critically about the basic structures of their households themselves, not just how they act within them. And, and as we approach these uh, relationships, I'm going to start with slaves and masters, because I think in the slaves and masters, it's easiest for us to see the subversive nature of what Paul is saying partly because it's, I think, a little bit clearer in the text, and partly because I think in our culture, we're all more on the same page about what we should be doing about slavery. We, we have all agreed that it's not a good thing. Then once we talk about slaves and masters, I'll go back to wives and husbands, children and, and parents. So Paul's expectation of slaves is not very different from what we might expect in a Roman household code. In fact, he pushes them to be even more obedient. He says, as for slaves, obey your human master with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Don't work to make yourself look good and try to flatter people, but act like slaves of Christ, carrying out God's will from the heart. Serve your owners enthusiastically as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings. You know that the Lord will reward every person who does what is right, whether that person is a slave or a free person. So for Paul, spirit-filled slaves are to be the best slaves on the block. They don't demand their rights. They serve faithfully even when no one is watching. Um, 
but he's also subversive with this at the same time. Uh, while Aristotle thought that slaves were by nature incapable of reason, Paul addresses the slaves directly, showing that they are humans, showing that they're capable of thinking, showing that they're capable of understanding what he's talking about. They are responsible moral agents just as much as the slave owners. He addresses the slaves before he addresses the masters, which gives them some degree of priority. And he teaches the slaves to obey, not because of their master's authority, but because of Christ. And so, in a sense, I think the slaves are, are in, a, in a small way, emancipated through this, because they're no longer slaves to their masters, but they're slaves to Christ, just as their masters are. And in their case, Paul's, Paul's command to them is to obey their masters, but not for their masters' sakes, rather for Christ's sakes. And so in that sense, I think he gives them more agency than would be normal for slaves in this world. Paul's message to masters is more overtly subversive while still allowing them their place as slave owners. He says, As for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them because you know that both you and your slaves have a master in heaven. He doesn't distinguish between people on the basis of status. So masters for Paul are still masters, right? Uh, But Paul's first word to the masters is shocking to me. He tells them to do the same thing that the slaves are doing. So he tells them to act like they're slaves in the way that he's just told the slaves to act. He's, uh, I mean, I think this is, this is uh, surprising. He's just told the slaves to obey their masters. Does he mean now for the masters to obey their slaves? How would a slave master rea- react to this kind of a word? Um, are they to serve their own slaves as if serving their master, Jesus? The, further, they are to stop threatening their slaves because in reality, both the masters and the slaves are slaves to Master Jesus, and Master Jesus does not see a distinction in value between the slave owners and the slaves. And so this is uh, quite a level of accountability that they're going to be held to account for the way they treat their slaves by their own masters. Um, So this is a heavy word for slave owners, I think. Um, The institution of slavery is not abolished by Paul here. Uh, but the slaves have been humanized. And can you, can you imagine when these, when these people come to church on Sunday and it's the day they say, oh, hey, we got a letter from Paul to the Ephesians and we're going to read it out in church this morning and everyone's excited and the slave owners are listening and, and this nodding along and then he gets to the slaves and they start thinking, this is weird. Why is he talking to the slaves? These are just my slaves. And they're being treated as equal members of the community and uh, being told to, but then, you know, he, Paul tells them to obey, and that's good, so they, they can nod to that, right? And then, he's, then he has these very terse instructions to the slave owners. Do the same thing that your slaves are doing. That's quite startling, isn't it? And then reminds them, you and their slaves have the same master in heaven, and he doesn't think anything different about you too. It's very startling, I think. Um, and while Paul never once says the institution of slavery is incompatible with a spirit-filled life, how long do you think a slave master can think about these words and not come to the conclusion that it is, it is incompatible with a spirit-filled Christian life to have slaves? I don't think that you can think about these words for very long without coming to that conclusion, even, even allowing for uh, the sort of cultural differences between first century Rome and now. So how does this p- apply to us today? We don't have slaves. I assume no one here is a slaveholder. No? Okay, Good. So uh, I commend you on that. Good work. Um, there is slavery elsewhere in the world, though, and I think that it is our job as Christians to resist that as we can. Um, perhaps more immediately for most of us, 
We can think about this passage in terms of how it applies to employees and uh, employees and bosses or employees and managers. What would it sound like if this passage had been addressed to employees and managers or bosses? Employees, how do you serve in your companies? Do you serve your bosses enthusiastically as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings? Maybe you do. If so, great work. If not, what might it look like if you did? And bosses and managers, do you treat your employees in the same way? Do you threaten them? Do you manage them in a way that would please both your and their boss in heaven who doesn't show distinctions based on seniority in companies and based on company hierarchies? If so, well done. If not, what might it look like for you to do so? Moving on to wives and husbands, Paul's word to the marriage partnership begins with an address to wives. Now, in this verb, in this sentence that's usually translated, wives submit to your husbands in um, our English Bibles, there's actually no verb. So the word submit is not there, which doesn't mean Paul's not telling them to submit, because what it means is he's borrowing that participle. Remember the participles from earlier? Uh, from the sentence when Paul, when Paul writes, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's using that word again in the next sentence. He's borrowing it. So uh, if we were to translate the whole statement... Um, uh, excuse me, this, this uh, as we've already said, this word submitting, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is, is the result of the real verb, which is be filled with the Spirit, right? We talked about that already. So if we translate, put the whole thing together, it would be something more like this, literally. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to their own husbands. And the reason I mention this is simply because it helps us to see clearly that Paul's statement to wives is not a standalone command. It is one way that the more general practice of submitting to one another works itself out. And furthermore, it reminds us that this command to submit is not really a true command, but it is the result of the true command, which is to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so I just want to make sure we have all this in our minds as we move forward into this section of, on, on wives and husbands. So, if we supply the verb then so that it makes sense in English, Paul says to the wives, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church, that is, the Savior of the body. So wives submit to their husbands in everything like the church submits to Christ. So as with slaves, Paul here affirms the Roman household structure, wives submit to their husbands. Here I think we, uh, we do include the hierarchical sense of the word submit because this is the Roman world. That's the only way they're going to understand this, right? So wives submit to their husbands. Uh, but, and, he, and he pushes the wives, like the slave, to submit with their whole hearts as completely as they submit to Christ. Now, just a word here. Our, our culture, I think, and I think this is some, in some ways very helpful, we tend to focus on extenuating circumstances a lot. So we don't like to generalize. We're trying to generalize less and less and think about, um, well, what, not just talk about normal situations, but talk about every other kind of situation. I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. He's talking about just kind of generally normal situations. So he's not saying, uh, for example, I don't think any of us would suggest that Paul is saying, wives, submit to your husbands even when they tell you to stop being a Christian, right? Being a Christian is the top priority for Paul all the time. Uh, so we're just talking about kind of your average situation. You submit to your, your husband in the normal things. Um, we're not talking about abusive situations. Um, and we're, uh, we're, of course, not talking uh, wor about worshiping husbands. It, we, the church submits to Christ, and part of that is worshiping Christ. And, of course, Paul is not saying, wives, worship your husbands. So we need to use a little common sense when we're interpreting this. Um, but he is telling wives to submit to their husbands. And as with slaves... 
The wives are addressed before their husbands, which affirms their agency and their personhood. So I don't see any way around it. Paul means that wives should submit to their husbands, but, and hear this, he means it for first century Roman Christian wives. The interpretive task for us then is not to figure out how Paul could have meant something other than submit when he said submit. I've, I've spent so much time trying to figure out this passage going, ah, he says submit, but he must not mean it, so how can he mean something other than submit? And I don't think that's the way forward for us. Rather, Our job is to see how Paul subverts this idea at the same time that he upholds it and to understand what it means for us to live spirit-filled lives in our marriages in 21st century North America, not in 1st century Rome. We need to approach our own culture the same way Paul approached his, namely with mutual self-sacrificial submission produced by the indwelling Spirit of God and ask how we ought to live in our own culture. Now, Paul's words to husbands is, as with the address to masters, more obviously subversive. Instead of telling husbands to rule their wives, he says this, As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's startling, isn't it? At least if you're a Roman household, uh, household owner, a Roman husband, to hear him not say rule your wife, but love your wife as Christ loved the church. Though men are the heads of households in Rome, men are not to use their headship to exploit their wives, Paul says, but to build her up into her best possible self. This reminds me of, do you remember in in the story of Esther, when Esther is brought to the palace and she's given a year of beauty treatments, right? Like every beauty treatment that they have in the Persian Empire, she's in the harem, and it's like a year in the spa, apparently, is the, the impression I get. And this is the kind of attention that I think Paul is talking about husbands giving to their wives. And it's not, of course, about, it's not about spa treatments, right? Like, that's not what Paul's talking about. But that sort of attention, I mean, of, to, toward her emotional, her physical, and her spiritual needs, um, that, that the husbands are to have this kind of full, thoroughgoing attention to their wives and tending to their wives and, and nurturing their wives. Um, we've already seen how Christ loved the church. And, uh, excuse me, I lost my place here. Let me find my spot for a second. We've already seen how Christ loved the the church, right, in Philippians. Um, He gives himself to the church. He doesn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. And he gives himself to the church even up to the point of death. So Paul here is radically redefining male headship without overtly discarding it. He explains that Christ gave himself to the church to make her holy by washing her in a bath of water with the word. And he did this to present himself with a splendid church, one without any sort of stain or wrinkle on her clothes, but rather one that is holy and blameless. So they're not exploiting their wives, they're building their wives up, taking care of all of their needs. Then Paul gives some practical advice. So not only is this the right thing to do as Christians, not only do we do this to follow Christ's example, but men, you're going to be better off if you do this, Paul says. And he says this, that's how husbands ought to love their wives in the same way as they do their own bodies. Anyone who loves himself or loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it, just like Christ does for the church because we are parts of his body. This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two of them will be one body. Marriage is a significant allegory, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. So Paul tells these Roman men that it's not only the right thing to do, it's a beneficial thing for them to do. And uh, 
He reminds us that in Genesis, we're told that marriage makes a man and a woman one body or one flesh. So just as our lives are better when we nurture our own bodies by exercising, by feeding ourselves good food, eating when we're hungry, putting clothes on when we're cold, so husbands' lives are better when they take careful care of their wives. Um, when, I went, when I was studying at Regent College, getting my MDiv, I didn't really exercise at all. I rode my bike some, but, uh, but hardly exercise, and I spent a lot of time at desks, as students do. And uh, toward the end of, I remember one particular time after a quarter had just ended, I'd been studying for finals, and my shoulders up here were just killing me, and I, like they wouldn't stop hurting. And Katie and I ended up going swimming, and I was just like, man, I really need to use my body. Like, I just have been abusing my body by sitting all the time and not exercising. And uh, I, I had a second stint of grad school later, and so when I started that, I, tried, I decided I had to take exercise more seriously because I have to take care of my body. And when I started exercising, I started eating more healthily so that my exercise would actually bear fruit and not just be uh, a lot of pain for no gain. Um, so, uh, but your body feels better when you exercise, right? And this is what Paul's talking about. You feel better when you exercise. You, you have less, fewer aches and pains. In the same way, if you take care of your wife, your life is going to be a lot better and you're going to have fewer aches and pains, not in the physical sense, but in the sort of relational sense. Paul never denies the male headship, but in a sense, he says to men, if you want headship, that's fine, but you're Christians now, so you have to do headship Christ's way. You have to be heads like Christ does, and that means total service to your wife, which is not like most kinds of headship we talk about, right? Especially in the Roman world. He pushes us towards God's created ideal, which I submit to you, based on the creation story, is men and women loving and valuing each other as images of God, inherently valuable and worthy of loving service, acknowledging God as our mutual head and not ruling over each other. So we honor God's intention for humanity, and we honor this passage in Ephesians, not by mimicking first century Roman household structures, but by living with spirit-filled selflessness in our marriages. Now, if you simply can't wrap your head around uh, an egalitarian marriage, I think there's room for a marriage with the man as the head in this passage. I think there's room for it if it, this is spirit-filled, self-sacrificial marriage, and if both parties agree that this is the way a marriage structure ought to be, I don't think God is going to be mad at anyone for having, uh, I guess this is called complementarian, a complementarian marriage uh, that is full of spirit-filled selflessness. But if this is the way you decide to approach your marriage, I encourage you to pay attention to how Paul pushes us toward abandoning headship in this passage. Just continue to think about that as you live your life. If you can work, in, work with an egalitarian relationship, I think this is where God is trying to push us. Um, However, being egalitarian is not a virtue in and of itself, and I think sometimes people get confused about this. An egalitarian relationship with the man and the woman as neither one as head is no better or no worse than a patriarchal relationship unless it is full of spirit-filled, self-sacrificial love. So that's the key. We've got to be filled with the Spirit, as I've said already in this sermon a number of times. And without that being Spirit-filled, and without that self-sacrificial approach to marriage, egalitarianism is an empty shell. Moving on to children and parents. Paul's word to children. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached so that things will go well for you, and you will live for a long time in the land. 
Now again, Paul affirms the usual order of things in a Roman household. Children are to obey their parents. And he, he uh, makes this um, more than simply a social expectation, as he's done with wives, as he's done with slaves, uh, by making it a religious duty. God has commanded that children obey their parents, and he's promised to reward those who do. But he's also again subversive in addressing kids and addressing them first. They are not belongings, they're people, right? He speaks to fathers as well. The CEB here has translated this uh, as um, parents, but for a number of reasons, I think fathers, is, as most translations have, is um, more correct in this case, which I'm happy to explain to you later, if you like. Um, he says, as for fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. Fathers are not to do as they please with their children, even though they're in authority. Uh, they're not to make their, their lives miserable, um, but they're rather to nurture them and raise them to know and to follow God well. Like with the wives and slaves, the head of the household has had things turned on him, and he must not ask what he wants from his children, but what his children need from him, right? Uh, however, unlike with wives and slaves, I've talked about Paul subverting that structural hierarchy in both those cases. I don't think he's doing that here with, ch- with children and parents. Um, the f- although the fathers are told to think carefully about what their children need and to care for their children, they're still in charge of, of the upbringing of their children. They're to raise their children in uh, the instruction of the Lord. So there's still this, this sense that the f- that fathers, and, and this includes mothers as well, of course, right? We're not, we're not saying that that mothers are not part of raising their children. That's not Paul's intention. Um, that parents are in charge still of raising their children and raising their children uh, the way God wants them to. So, the day the, the letter to the Ephesians came to this church was a rough day for the heads of households. Um, though Paul never explicitly rejects their headship, it's a triple whammy for them. Uh, everything they thought they knew about headship has been turned on its head, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, And now they must serve and love those whom they thought were to serve and love them. And if they think about it for very long, they'll start to see that in Christ, they're they're not to be heads over their wives and over their slaves, but they're to be equal with them. So our task as Christians, Paul has been articulating throughout this letter, is to take off the old self and put on the new self, to relinquish our old identity and find our new identity in Christ. And Paul tells us that this means being filled with the Spirit. Gordon Fee calls this Spirit God's empowering presence. So let God's empowering presence fill you up to the brim. I need to let God's empowering presence fill me up to the brim. Let the Spirit infuse every area of your life. Specifically, let the Spirit infuse your community here at Bethany Eastside. Empowering you to be a community characterized by true and heartfelt worship of God. Let the Spirit infuse us as individuals and as a community, empowering us to become people characterized by profound gratitude to God. And let the Spirit infuse our relationships, empowering us to selflessly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in our church, in our marriages, with our children, with our parents, in our places of employment, with our roommates, with our friends, at the CrossFit gym, at PTA meetings, everywhere we go. Let me pray. I'll I'll invite the band up and I'll pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would fill us with your spirit. God, I ask that that you would infuse each of us with your presence, that we would grow to know and and trust your spirit and to live by the power of your spirit in all these areas of our lives, that we would selflessly serve one another, 
that we would care for one another, not thinking of our own needs first, but thinking about the needs of others first. In your name, amen.